Warning. While this podcast always deals with content of a more mature nature, I felt it was necessary for me to add a warning to the beginning of this episode in particular. This episode talks about sexual assault on minors, depression and suicide, as well as drug addiction. Lastly, at the end of the episode, I address a recent event that involves gun violence. And let's just say the emotions get a little heavy. I apologize now in advance. If you stick around to the end, that is. I will be posting resource links and hotline. I will be posting resource links and hotline numbers for all of these things in the episode description. If you need help with anything, just know that it's out there. I feel kind of like God. <laughs> and then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. <laughs> Be careful. You never know. You might get dabbed to death. What's up, booties? It's your ghost host with the most. Nick Nobody Savage, and you are listening to Dab to Death, a true crime, cannabis, and everything in between podcast. I know you all were, and still are, expecting part two of the simulation theory episodes, but unfortunately I must once more delay the episode in order to protect the health and well-being of my guest. That's right, unfortunately I have caught some shitty little bug that's going around, and I would rather push back an episode than risk getting someone else sick. If only my coworkers had had the same consideration before showing up to work sick. <clears throat> don't fuck your coworkers. Hey, don't fuck your coworkers. <laughs> Anyways, I do have another story for you, and it's overall a pretty sad story of one family's absolute roller coaster of unfortunate events that spanned nearly 30 years. I am talking, of course, about the Stainer family. More specifically, the Stainer's two sons, Carrie and Stephen. The Stainer family went through a dark event that no family should have to endure. Even worse, they suffered through that event for almost seven and a half years. And just when it seemed like things were getting back to normal, whatever normal may be, the darkness just kept coming for the Stainer family. But before we get into this week's story, let's talk about what I'm dabbing on. Sounds like a Al-Anon, but dabbing on. <laughs> I would never. Uh, so this week I have some fruit gushers. Um, and again, this is all paper planes. Sorry, I, I really, you know, I, I got sick, so I didn't have the chance to go out and get. Anyway. Not going to make excuses, just going to smell the weed. So it was like a batter, but it's like kind of dry. Um, I'd say, oh, maybe like more of a crumble. I know we don't really make crumbles, but whatever. It has a really super light coloration to it. It almost looks like rosin, uh, which is kind of cool. If it was a little wetter, I would definitely think this was rosin. I also have some lemon cherry. Uh, it looks like a diamond sauce, sugary substance kind of deal. Um, wow, that's a 
That's a very interesting smell. It's 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 like lemon, but with like a funkiness to it. Like it's got some kind of an OG in there, you know. Uh, I've got some gush mints. Gush mints. These are just uh, some diamonds. Looks like they kind of crashed out a little bit, but it's still fire. And last but not least, I got the midnight lemon. Oh, that is super pungent but uh i don't know the coloration it's a little darker than uh than our usual stuff probably not gonna send that out you know i I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't uh so i think i will start you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna give the midnight lemon a chance i'm gonna do that first uh even though it's you know not the prettiest all right, let's see here. Got this little guy. Oh, shit, shit. Okay, well, that didn't work. There we go. Oh. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about this one. take this moment to apologize now for the excessive amount of coughing (coughs) I'm still getting over whatever it was and uh, it's largely a respiratory issue oh fuck alright I've got to say Whenever I can say things again. (coughs) The uh, the midnight uh, midnight lemon. Oh fuck. The midnight lemon's a sleeper. Like it doesn't look the best. It didn't smell the best. I mean, like the product itself smelled alright, but when it hit the banger, I was a little concerned. But honestly, that flavor was really good. Uh, between dying, obviously. I'm going to have to limit my dab breaks on this one. Oh, fuck. Uh, All right. All right. Now, this topic was actually recommended to me by my mother, of all people. And before you go thinking that me hosting this kind of a podcast makes way more sense now... Let me provide a little background. My mom has actually worked as a correctional officer for, God, 20 plus years, 25 something. She's coming up on retirement, actually. Um, So she's been a prison or correctional officer for a while now and has worked at some pretty hardcore prisons, including San Quentin State Prison, which just so happens to be where Carrie Stainer is currently incarcerated. 
serving his sentence at the Adjustment Center on San Quentin's death row. Right about now, if you aren't already familiar with this story, you're probably going, whoa, Nick, what the fuck? How did we end up here? That escalated so quickly. Well, never fear. As I mentioned earlier, the events that transpired with the Stainer family stretched out slowly over three decades. So have a seat, stay a while, and buckle up, because this is a long and bumpy ride. The troubles that plagued this family began long before Carrie Stainer would end up on death row. In fact, they didn't begin with Carrie at all. Let's rewind to December 4th, 1972, when national attention began to be drawn to Merced, California after it was reported that seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was missing and was believed to have been kidnapped. Stephen was on his way home from school that afternoon when he was approached by a man handing out religious pamphlets and collecting donations for the church. The man asked Stephen if he thought that perhaps his mother would want to donate any items, to which he replied that she might. It was at this moment that a white Buick pulled up to Stephen and the man. The driver is introduced to Stephen as a minister with the church. They tell him that the minister will drive him home, and Stephen climbs into the car with him. Unfortunately for Stephen, the two men he had encountered were not with any church. At least not one you should trust your children around. Probably just pissed off a lot of people with that one, but moving on. The man who was handing out pamphlets was named Irvin Edward Murphy, and the minister he was helping to abduct young Stephen was a convicted child rapist named Kenneth Parnell. Parnell had convinced Murphy, who many referred to as a simple and naive person, that he was indeed an aspiring minister and that he merely wanted to take the child to live a religious life. I'm sorry, but even if he is a minister, and even if... Like, I, why would you agree to help somebody just take a child? You can't just be like, oh, yeah, this child, he's hes living in sin. I'm, I'm going to save him and give him to this guy. Because this guy said he's going to introduce him to Jesus. Right, right. I'm just going to go over here now. That guy's a fucking weirdo. Anyway. Once they were inside the vehicle, Parnell began to drive them towards a cabin in Kathy's Valley, rather than towards Merced, where the Stainer family lived. He stopped along the way to use a payphone, and when he returned to the vehicle, he began to spin the narrative that he had spoken with Stephen's parents, and that they had told him they no longer wanted him, and that they couldn't afford to raise him anymore. They reached the cabin, and sadly the molestation began pretty much the very first night. Parnell spent the next couple of weeks drilling it into Stephen's head that his parents not only did not want him, but had already signed over their parental rights to him, making his, him, quote, his legal guardian, end quote. Kenneth then told Stephen that his name was now Dennis Parnell, and Stephen even began to call Kenneth Dad. Kenneth made no attempt to hide Stephen Dennis, 
even going so far as to enroll him in schools in the various cities throughout California that they would move to. This went on for the next seven and a half years, and by all outward appearances, Dennis was a normal kid. A shy one, but a normal one. While Stephen was gone, his family never gave up hope that he would be found, despite the fading press attention. So you can imagine that the pain associated with his kidnapping was brought back up when the news broke that five-year-old Timmy White had been kidnapped in Ukiah, California. Fun fact, my sister lives there. Throughout the time that Stephen was held by Parnell, Kenneth had attempted to abduct other children on several occasions, often recruiting Stephen to try and help him. All of these attempts failed, however, which Kenneth just attributed to Dennis's incompetence as an accomplice. Stephen would later reveal that he had intentionally sabotaged all of the attempts in hopes of preventing another child from ending up in the same predicament he was in. Unfortunately, Kenneth was able to enlist the help of one of Stephen's friends named Randall Sean Poorman. In exchange for $50, some weed, and some alcohol, Randall helped Parnell lure five-year-old Timmy White to his car on February 14, 1980. Happy fucking Valentine's Day, sheesh. Almost immediately, Stephen decided that he needed to get this kid out of there. He refused to let what had happened to him happen to Timmy. On the night of March 1st, 1980, Stephen Stainer took little Timmy out of their house prison and hitchhiked with him over 40 miles to Ukiah. Police were astounded when the two young boys walked into the station late that night, and were even more blown away when they discovered that the older boy that was there was actually Stephen Stainer. The next morning, Kenneth Parnell was arrested on suspicion of abducting the two boys, and after seven long years, Stephen Stainer returned home. Once more, the case gained national attention, this time with a happier conclusion. A statement on how fucked up our judicial system was, slash is, however, Kenneth Parnell would only be sentenced to seven years for the kidnappings of Stephen Stainer and Timmy White. Even worse, he would only serve five years of that sentence before being paroled. Not surprisingly, Parnell would find himself back in prison after offering his home care worker, or her sister depending on the source, $500 to procure him a four-year-old boy. This time, the sentence was 25 to life thanks to the three strikes law here in California, And luckily, that piece of shit died in 2008. Anyways, back to the Stainers. Upon his return, Stephen was regarded as a hero, and despite the constant attention from the media, life eventually seemed to return to normal. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, you can message me at feedback at... I'm just kidding, guys. We can't end there. (laughs) I'm joking. Uh, unfortunately, the story does not end there. You know, hell, we haven't even gotten to Carrie yet, so how much more do I have to do? Yeah, you know what? I think it's a good time for a dab break. All right, let's see. Ah, Gushmints. Very good, very good. Take a nice little chunky diamond here. Diamonds are forever. Low temps. 
Hoping to avoid that. <coughs> hmm. All right. Hmm. <coughs> I don't know if it's just because they're diamonds and there's not a whole lot of terps in here. But I'm kind of having trouble finding like the flavor profile on this one. <coughs> oh, shit. I'm crying. I think I'm literally getting dabbed to death. <coughs> See, this is my dedication to this show. Dabs are probably the last thing I should be doing. But for you guys, I will. Oh, fuck. <coughs> I wish that I could tell you that Steven's story ends happily. But sadly, that is not the case. After struggling to adjust to a more structured life back home with his parents, Steven dropped out of school, mainly due to bullying from the other kids about his molestation. Which, what the fuck, kids? Come on. Kids are fucking awful. Like, seriously. Like, humans are terrible in the first place, but kids? Jesus. Anyway, sorry. Off on my anti-children tangent. I'll, I'll come back. He began to drink more and would rarely talk about what had happened to him while he was Parnell's prisoner. Just when it seemed that he was slipping into the darkness, he met and married Jody Edmondson in 1985. The two had two children together a daughter named Ashley, and a son named Stephen Jr. Fatherhood seemed to be just the thing that Stephen needed to bring him back from that darkness. He stopped drinking, joined the Church of the Latter-day Saints, which is Mormons in case you were wondering, and even began speaking at various groups and schools about safety and gave interviews about what he went through. Tragically, just as things were starting to get better, Death came for the Stainer family. One day, while he was riding his motorcycle home from work, Stephen was struck and killed by a hit-and-run driver. His death hit the Stainer family extremely hard. To endure all of that time that he was missing, then have him return home over seven years later, only to die tragically young? It's beyond difficult to even imagine what that must have been like. There's actually a new miniseries on Hulu about the Stainer family story that I highly recommend you all check out. It's called Captive Audience. Um, there's a subtitle, but just type in Captive Audience and you'll find it. Um, it shows a lot of interviews with members of the Stainer family, including their mother Kay and Stephen's daughter Ashley. And you can see that this is still immensely painful for them. And with one member of the family taken away from them, twice, and another on death row at San Quentin, how could it not be? What's up, Vooties? Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about Can Wistu. 
CanWiz2 is a company that provides quality curated products for gamers, anime fans, and anyone in between. Products such as super cool LED lights, including your custom gamer tag or social media handle on an acrylic desktop LED light. They also sell items such as gaming, gaming mice, headsets, and other gaming room setup items. While CanWiz2 focuses on providing great products and customer service, they also focus on raising awareness on mental health. With this goal in mind, CanWiz2 has launched their Buy Anything, Serve the Society campaign. With this campaign, they aim to contribute 25% of their profits towards raising awareness and helping people suffering from mental health. Let's bring a smile to so many faces. Using the link... Uh, you can find a link to CanWiz2 uh, on the link tree in. You can find the link to Can. Uh, fuck. You can find the CanWiz2 link in my Insta on my Instagram page. Oh, fuck. You can find the the link to CanWiz2 on my link tree link in my. Uh, you can find. Uh, you can find the link to CanWiz2 in the link tree on my Instagram, or you can just go to canwiz2.store. That's C-A-N-W-I-S-T-O dot store. But make sure to use code DABTODEATH for 10% off of your order. That's DABTODEATH for 10% off of your order. Now, back to the episode. And now for a segment of Now That's Knowledge with Nick Nobody Savage. Let's pause the Stainer story for a moment and take a look inside San Quentin's infamous death row, including the Adjustment Center. As of November 8th this year, there are 676 condemned inmates in the state of California, making it the highest death row population in the entire country. San Quentin's death row is split into three different sections, which helps to house the staggering amount of condemned inmates. The first section, known as North Seg, which is short for segregation, is where the least problematic inmates are housed. North Seg was built in 1934 and was originally intended to serve as the entire death row. You know, back when we didn't have almost 700 condemned inmates. Now, however, it only houses 68 of them. To get to the North Segregation Unit, officers must use a phone next to a creepy black iron door with the words Condemned Row above it in an old English-style font. Uh, if you want to see this door, I'm sure you can just Google San Quentin uh, Death Row Door. Uh, or can you can even do Condemned Row. Maybe that'll help uh, the result turn up better. But it's kind of weird because it like curves out like a little cage. At, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, so once they have called up, an elevator is sent down to the ground floor and the officer rides up to the sixth floor where North Seg is. 
or this elevator actually only goes to those two floors, one and six. Apparently, there is a wait list for death row inmates who wish to be housed at North Sig. And to even qualify, an inmate must not have any write-ups or behavioral issues. Considering the amount of time out of their cells that they receive and that their yard is located on the roof with a beautiful view of Mount Tamalpais, it's not hard to see why. Moving on from North Seg, the bulk of death row inmates are housed in the unit known as East Block, where up until recently, Scott Peterson was housed. East Block is a musty, five-tiered building, often described as a crumbly, leaking maze of a place that has 520 cells. Inmates are given a minimum of 10 hours a week out in the yard, with the more violent inmates being kept in their own caged yards during this time. The 9x6 cells are enclosed behind metal mesh doors, making it harder for inmates to see out of their cells. East Block is split into the two halves, Yard Side and Bay Side, with one obviously facing the yard and one side facing the bay. Uh, I mean, not saying I want to go there, but if I ever had to be on either side, I would definitely choose Bay Side. I mean, I don't think they have a choice, but I would want to be on Bay Side. Lastly, that brings us to the Adjustment Center. The Adjustment Center, or the AC as it's referred to, is the most secure unit in the prison and is actually regarded as the most secure unit in the state, with access into and out of the building being strictly controlled. Lieutenant Sam Robinson had this to say about the AC, quote, The adjustment center is a contained, enclosed unit. The staff inside the facility don't have the ability to let themselves out to move freely throughout the rest of the facility. When they come to work every day, they're locked into prison with 102 of the most dangerous convicted felons we have here in the state of California. End quote. I actually got that from uh, the article will be in the episode description. I'll have to track it down, you know. But it's a pretty interesting article. Um, this journalist basically got permission to go inside the adjustment center. Not like all the way, like, you know, check out the cells and do all that. Cause like, obviously there's a lot of safety issues and like liability issues there, but it's a good read. I'll have it in the episode description. You should check it out. The AC serves as the first stop for death row inmates before they are moved to East block or later North Seg. In addition to that, it is where they house the most violent and pro and problematic inmates. To enter the AC, officers must first travel through what is known as a sally port, which is basically a controlled access point, almost like an airlock. Only one gate can be opened at a time, acting as the first line of defense for attempted escapes. Coming out of the sally port, you enter a courtyard and see a long off-white building with barred windows. This is the Adjustment Center. Opened in 1960, the AC offers the least freedoms of the entire prison. Inmates in the AC have very limited yard time, no access to educational programs, and are in solitary confinement for pretty much the entirety of their time there. Uh, 
another article I was reading. Uh, I won't. I probably won't link this one. Maybe if I can find it, I'll link it again. But whatever. Um, you know, another article for this one. Uh, it was basically written, or there was a bunch of inmates that were trying to uh, protest the conditions in the adjustment center specifically. Um, and I believe that they even just did like a hunger strike and their hunger strike was used as more of a reason to keep them in the adjustment center. So like literally like, I don't know. It's like, I'm not trying to say that like people in prison don't deserve to be in fucking prison. They do. But I think there's like a line. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not going to get involved in it. That's not the point of this segment. Um, some inmates have literally spent years of their sentences in the adjustment center. I can't imagine like being that restricted for that long. Like I think the longest guy was like 13 years or some shit. It's crazy. But then again, because like I said, you know, these people are in prison. They did do fucked up shit. Well, a majority of them get not going there, but okay. So on the, on the other side of this, you know, yes, there's obviously people that belong in extreme, uh, extremely restricted incarceration, you know, basically because like they're super violent. Like there was one guy who's apparently retired four different officers so one guy has retired four people because he's like attacked them so violently that they were, you know, injured to the point they could not return to work. So, I mean, it's, it's obviously that, you know, it's obvious that there are people that need this kind of a, confinement, but I, I don't think that, um, sending people to the adjustment center for like a hunger strike or, keeping them in there because of the I yeah, like I said not going there if you want to look into it uh, like I said I will provide a couple of articles but other than that you can look into San Quentin's history itself there's a huge history of the prison uh, yeah so I talked with my mom the other day and she said she's going to send me some ghost stories from San Quentin so maybe even some other prisons so I will keep you posted on those stay tuned and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Before we jump back into the story, I think it's time for another dab break. Dab break. Should come up with some kind of cool little like musical thing for dab breaks. That'd be kind of fun. If you have any uh, suggestions or if you want to create one and send it to me, you can send that to feedback at dabtodeath.com. So I think I'm going to do the lemon cherry this time. I'm saving the fruit gushers for last because that looks really, really pretty. And I want to save it. Savor the flavor. Mm -mm -mm. Boom, 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 boom. 
Oh shit, okay. Obviously, there's the like that sharpness you get from any kind of a citrusy strain, you know, that's like that really nice pungent citrus flavor kind of. But there's this undertone that I really like. It's almost floral. Like lemon and rose. Like if I had to base it down to a fruit and a flower, that's what it tastes like. I don't know what rose like actually tastes like, but if a you know what I mean. Mm. <coughs> oh fuck <sighs> alright <clears throat> now let's get back to Carrie Stainer last we had checked in tragedy had struck the Stainer family once more when their son Stephen had been killed by a hit and run driver on his way home from work and as we all know by now, before that was the seven and a half years that Stephen was missing after being abducted by Kenneth Parnell. While all of this was extremely difficult for the Stainer family to endure, one can't help but wonder what kind of an impact this all had on Carrie, Stephen's brother. Unfortunately for Carrie, his problems didn't begin with the abduction of his brother. In fact, according to later psychiatric evaluations during his trial, Carrie had first started experiencing dark thoughts as young as six or seven, and he was 11 years old when Stephen was kidnapped. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Before we get to Carrie Stainer's trial, we should probably discuss the events that led him there. Throughout his adult life, Carrie struggled with drug addiction and depression. He attempted to commit suicide in 1991 and was arrested in 1997 for possession of marijuana and methamphetamines, though the charges were later dropped. In 1997, Carrie also got a job working as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel, which is located just outside of the Highway 140 entrance into Yosemite National Park. Fun fact, another reason this episode was suggested and chosen is because our family used to go to Yosemite about once a year, um, but I never really knew that there was like this whole dark event associated with it until uh, my mom sent me this story, which is funny because like I remember hearing the story of Steven Stainer like on a podcast somewhere or 
Um, you know, just the, the story itself was very familiar to me when I, I read about him saving the little boy and I was like, oh shit, I know this story. Did not know that his brother would go on to do what he do when he do what he did, you know? So let's, let's talk about that. On February 15th, 1999, 42 year old Carol Sund, her 15 year old daughter, Julie, and Julie's 16-year-old friend, Silvina Peloso, all went missing. They were staying at the Cedar Lodge Motel. On March 19th, police found the bodies of Carol Sund and Silvina Peloso in the trunk of their burned-out car inside Yosemite Park. The bodies were so badly burned that they could only be identified through dental records. Investigators then received an anonymous letter telling them where they could find the body of Julie Sund, with a message that read, quote, we had fun with this one, end quote. On March 25th, authorities uncovered the remains of Julie in the park. Her throat had been slit so severely that she was nearly decapitated. Carrie Stainer was questioned in relation to the murders, but due to the fact that he was a clean-cut guy with no real criminal record, the police didn't think that he had anything to do with it. Then, on July 22, 1999, the decapitated corpse of 26-year-old naturalist Joy Armstrong was discovered near the cabin she was staying in. Unlike the first murders, there was plenty of evidence at the scene to connect Carrie to the crime. Tire tracks matching his truck, as well as a red mechanic's hat that belonged to him, were found. Shortly after, an APB was issued for Carrie Stainer. The FBI got involved, and agents John Bowles and Jeff Rinnick caught up with Carrie at the Laguna del Sol nudist colony in Wilton, California, and he was taken to Sacramento for questioning. Why, hello, officer. Are you here to frisk me? I'm sorry, it's just like I picture him at a nudist colony when the cops come up, and he's just like, yeah. Uh, you can arrest me. You might want to cuff this guy, too. He's a deadly weapon. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that, that was that was bad even for me. Uh, anyway. Oh, moving right along. Investigators settled in for the interrogation process, ready to be there as long as it took to get the information they needed. But Carrie Stainer astonished everyone when he offered to confess but with one disturbing condition. He would confess in exchange for child pornography. He also asked that the $250,000 reward that was being offered by the Armstrong family be given to his family in order to help them out and make up for the hurt that he knew his actions would cause them. I mean, I guess his intentions were noble on that one, but... um. I, I can't look past the asking for child pornography thing. <sighs> anyway, the agents told him that the reward money was not theirs to promise to the Stainer family and that there was no way they could provide him with his other request. Eventually, Carrie confessed not only to the murder of Joy Armstrong, but to the murders of Sylvina Peloso and Carol and Julie Sund as well. And confess he did. 
Carrie told them how he had used the excuse of a, quote, water leak to convince Carol to let him into their room at the motel. He then strangled both Carol and Sylvina, put their bodies into the trunk of their car, and then forced Julie to ride around with him for hours while he decided what to do with the bodies. After a while, he parked near a trail, led Julie down it to a nearby creek, then slit her throat and left her there. He then returned to the car and burned it. (sighs) This fucking story. When it came to the murder of Joy Armstrong, he admitted that he did not intend to kill her, but that he had simply been overcome by the urge to kill once more upon seeing her. She was sadly in the wrong place at the wrong time. Carrie told investigators that he had held her at gunpoint in her cabin before binding her hands and mouth with some duct tape. They were driving around in his truck when Joy managed to jump out of the window of the moving vehicle and attempted to escape from him. Unfortunately, Carrie caught up to her and beheaded her. He told them that he could no longer resist the urge to kill and that had he not been caught, he would have continued this murder spree. The thoughts had plagued him for over 30 years, tearing at him, a constant battle between his self-control and his dark desires. Sadly, and with disastrous consequences, Carrie Stainer lost that battle. Fortunately, he was caught before he could cause any more harm. As if my throat's not fucked up enough, and as if I'm not going to regret doing it because I'm going to die for like 10 minutes coughing. But, uh, last dab of the day. Oh, yeah. That fruit gushers. Oh, yeah. Fruit gushers. I don't know what the fuck that was. I'm going to cut that. That was weird. Like Bill Clinton. It was like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. How about George W. Bush? My fellow Americans, <laughs> the war on terror was a <laughs> a serious matter, <laughs> but that's why I'm chuckling. <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, I've got the fruit gushers here. It's uh super airy, actually. Like it's like got a nice aeration to it. Like it's it breaks up real well. It's kind of kind of. Oh shit! Yeah, I could like break this up into almost a. This is definitely like a crumble more than a batter. It's a battery crumble. A crumbly batter. Anyway, I'm just gonna do the dab. I'm not a dick though, so oh my god, that tastes amazing. I'm not a dick though, so I'm not gonna do ASMR of the <coughs> me coughing and dying. <coughs> Holy fuck, that is good. <coughs> Oh my god.
delicious. It's muy delicioso. That's some good shit. <coughs> oh, fuck, I'm seeing little stars, man. So, back to the story. So now we are all caught up. Back to the moment of Stainer's trial. Carrie was tried in federal court since Joy was killed in a national park, which is federal land. He pleaded guilty to premeditated first-degree murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death, hoping to avoid the death penalty. There was one moment during the sentencing hearing where Carrie stunned the entire courtroom when he broke down in tears. Sobbing, he apologized for what he had done, saying, quote, I wish I could take it back, but I can't. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm so sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless. End quote. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and moved on to the state's case for the other three murders. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity with his lawyers citing a, quote, family history of sexual abuse and mental illness that traced back as far as five generations, end quote. They stated that this history of abuse manifested itself in Carrie's obsessive compulsive disorder, his bizarre request for child porn during the interrogation, and ultimately the murders themselves. Dr. Jose Arturo Silva testified that Stainer not only had obsessive compulsive disorder, but also mild autism and, par and paraphilia, which is defined as the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. It has also been defined as sexual interest in anything other than a consenting human partner. That shit is not cool because we all know consent is sexy. Psychological evaluations also revealed that Carrie himself had been a victim of sexual assault at the hands of an uncle right around the time that his brother Stephen had been kidnapped. They thought that the combination of his own molestation and the abuse that his brother endured at the hands of Kenneth Parnell added coals to the burning ember in Carrie's mind, stoking it into a fire that eventually consumed him. Despite this, Carrie Stainer was found sane enough to stand trial and was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances and one count of kidnapping by a jury on August 27, 2002. Since then, he has been serving his time at the good old AC at San Quentin State Prison. Well, thus concludes this long and tragic tale of one family's decades-long saga of loss, misery, and death. Let me know what you think of this or any other episode by sending an email to feedback at dabtodeath.com or message me on any of the socials at dabtodeath. Unless you're on Instagram, then it's at dabtodeathpodcast. Before I go, I just wanted to remind you to check out CanWiz2. Link will be in the episode description, and be sure to use code DABTODEATH for 10% off your purchase.
Uh, also, I will be posting the giveaway uh, rules and information in, on Instagram and all over social media soon. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Sorry about that. It's just gotten away from me. Um, but I, I will be doing the giveaway. Uh, there will be three prizes. Um, so there are the grand prizes, like a mystery box. That's a bunch of dab to death stuff. And then, uh, the other two probably get like a shirt and some stickers. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for that. Sorry, I'm a little high and uh, haven't been smoking all weekend because I've been sick. So, yeah. Um, plugged all the socials, did the can whisk to giveaway. Oh, I don't normally do. Um, my heart goes out to uh, the families of everyone affected by the shooting at club Q in Colorado. Um, you know, uh, basically a, somebody went into a nightclub that was hosting a drag show. Um, it was an LGBTQ friendly venue, obviously. And some people still have a fucking problem with that for some reason. So, Unfortunately, it happened, and um, so like I said, my heart goes out to the family of everyone affected. Um, I will be posting resource links for that as well, um, you know, for gun violence and um, for, you know, hate crimes and discrimination, and basically it's going to be a whole lot of hotlines in the episode description on this one, so... It, it's been a journey. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know. This story was a lot, uh, you know, but yeah, so, uh, (laughs) it's sad that things, things are still happening, but you know, it's important that we don't let shit like that control our lives you know so if you are part of the lgbtq community just know that um you are loved and that when i say voodoos and voodals and all my voodies in between that's because i i love everyone and Just know that you are all welcome here at Dab to Death. And uh, stand strong. And be careful out there because you never know when you might get Dab to Death. God, that feels inappropriate. <laughs> uh, bye.